My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. I was place fishing over the mussel beds at Morecambe recently when a chap set up at the side of me, and as you do, I strolled over for a chat while we waited for the low water feeding to switch on, which he did incidentally big style. It was obvious by his accent that he wasn't a local. His name, as it turned out, was Eddie Weitzel, originally from Essex, which with its good track record both from the boat and the shore, got me wondering what he was doing up here fishing in our neck of the woods, the reason for which turned out to be that he now lives at Blackpool. I fished around Essex myself in the dim and distant past, where I was shown the basics of uptide fishing by its co-inventor John Rawl, who have also recorded an audio podcast with on the topic, in which he explained how he and Bob Cox developed the technique while crewing aboard the Bradwell-based boat Provident, skippered by Arthur Weitzel. Now there's a name you don't hear too often. So was it a coincidence or what? As it turned out, Eddie was actually Arthur Weitzel's son, and had been present on the boat while some of the early development of uptiding took place. But before we get to all that, The obvious question then has to be, how does the shore fishing up here in Lancashire compare to that which you left behind in Essex? Is the grass actually greener, or do anglers just think it is? I would say that it is as it is, it's it's not really greener. It's different techniques, and local knowledge is essential. The beach fishing, where I used to go on the Thames, mainly flounders, during the summer, bass searches along the Saltings, towards Shubiness and places like that. South End Pier, of course, with the mackerel. But um, the winter species obviously come into its own when the uh, whiting arrived along with the codling, and then it was Canby Island, within reaching distance of the uh, main shipping channels, and obviously some of the uh, Occidental jetties and uh, a place called the Drop, where you are casting into 70, 80 foot of water, but very hard to fish because of the, uh, the sheer drop-off of that location you haven't got that luxury up here it's shallow beach but there's one thing what sort of gets you going is the surf as soon as you see that surf on that beach you know the fish are there providing there's not been too much weed or rain or something you're fine against the weed and the strong winds but you know that at certain times of year especially in the autumn time if there's a, a southwesterly blowing you grab your bait and off you go down there and you're wading out across the gullies and then you're fishing, and then you know within about 20 minutes, first two or three casts, you know the fish are there. But when you get the Eastleys, now you're talking a different ball game up here, you know. It's all doom and gloom, not always. I mean, if if it's just just turned Eastley, yeah, it does put the cuddling off, you know. But uh, you can adapt yourself, and then all of a sudden you get the Eastleys, you find someone with a, a small boat and say, look, Eastleys are here, flat, calm conditions, get out there. Yeah, it's hand-rubbing time for small boaters up here, but it can be good for boat anglers on a much more regular basis at places such as Bradwell, situated as it is up an east-facing estuary with lots of shelter and a prevailing westerly airstream. Well, let's not forget, plenty of good fish too. So the grass is potentially a lot greener there to an outsider like me. Like you say, you've got more opportunities down there. You've got locations. If If you're launching boats, you know, you look at your wind direction... And you'll say, right, I can launch from, say, Clacton, Walton, or Mersey, if it's a northwesterly, southwesterly, Bradwell, just fishing up in the river, in the estuary. And you've got pretty much a decent protection, especially further up towards Stone and St. Lawrence Bay. 
Yeah, there's, there's plenty of uh, areas, and then you've got Two Tree Island near Canvey Island where you can launch and you can find a good amount of shelter providing the tides are correct. But off the far coast, yeah, you just pray for Aislis. And let's not forget the River Mersey, which, due to its shelter and species mix, is our version of the Thames estuary. I've only fished Mersey a few times, I've not seen many small boats here, but uh, I would say that. The potential there for uh, fishing small boats is, is fantastic, especially further out in the estuary, because you've got, the, you know, not many bass come into the river. I don't know why, but there's plenty on the outskirts, and there's a few wrecks as well further out, 15 miles out, and there's the potential there as well. But looking at the charters, the charter industry in Liverpool, they just disappear in the summer. They're off to real and places like that. I'm sure there's decent pollock out there and on wrecks and stuff like that. But are they within the range of the small 16, 17-foot boats? Some do make the trip. I've done it myself. But it isn't easy dinghy fishing there a full stop. For starters, launching at New Brighton is about as exposed as it gets for the Mersey, even though you intend sailing inland in the winter to the calmer water, pretty much adjacent to the marina where the charter boats, which can handle a bit more water, all tend to tie up. So they win always round. Then, in the summer, when the boats do head out to the wrecks, compared to other parts of the country, the water is shallow, the wrecks are often broken up and in some cases silted up, on top of which the pollock and cod are often far less numerous and usually of more modest size. Yeah, so you are limited in that way. So you've got to really check, I mean, a couple of times I've fished the Mersey, it has been blowing a bit of a, bit of a hoolie. But providing it's not northwesterly, I think you're fine. But like you say, in an estuary, when you've got a river like the Mersey, you've got short seas, and it's not good for small boats. It's horrendous at times, yeah. sometimes. And that's exactly what you've got in the Thames, a short sea. You haven't got these big swells you can handle, like when we used to launch down off of um, Dover, where the only dodgy bit is getting through the harbour wall, the, the harbour gap, rather, and that's once you're out there, the swell, you don't notice it so much. And, uh, yeah, it can plough out 15, 20 miles. And it's not a problem, we can do it. But the difference is with going out from Dover, fishing the Dover Straits, and the banks around there, you've got thousands and thousands of wrecks to choose from. Thousands. Off of Liverpool, I could only count about 12 or 14 within striking range. But never got to fish them. I've, I've talked to a few people that fished them, but they just, I think they, they launched from the far coast and went down to some of the wrecks towards the mouth of the Liverpool Mersey and the River Dee and uh, you've only got two or three wrecks to fish and then if they're not holding the fish or the tyres or the wind's in the wrong direction you can't drift it properly what are you going to do? It's very patchy actually because most of the wrecks are in quite shallow water many are broken up and some have even been blown up because they were shipping hazards while others are simply silted up the fish can also be transitory some wrecks can fish well one day for pollock and cod, then nothing the next. But few of the fish are of any sort of size compared to other parts of the country. When I joined the Fylde Boat Club, there was a few people who were quite experienced in that sort of area and they did say the pollock fishing wasn't as good as what you'd find off the south coast. But like you say, when you're fishing shallow wrecks, I don't know, 50, 60 foot, you can only afford to do two or three, four drifts, and that's it. Your fish are gone and are scattered, and you'd have to sort of do a rotation of three or four ricks at a time just to keep coming back and finding out. It's not ideal because some of the wrecks we fished out from Brighton and Newhaven, 
you sit on that wreck for about three or four hours, keep drifting and drifting, and all of a sudden the fish will just turn on to whatever reason the tide up, the fish, the pollock are sitting quite high up off the wrecks. And they're not basically in such a depth, they're, they're, they're more or less intact, some of the wrecks. And you've got more choice on the locations you can do, you know, so within four miles there's another wreck, another three miles there's another wreck. And there's little bands like there's 15 mile wrecks, there's 20 miles and there's 26 miles. You can say I can go out further. They're not on this wreck. They're not coming to these wrecks at the moment. So we can go a little bit further and we'll find the bigger fish. Right. Time to backtrack now to the 1960s to the John Rawl, Bob Cox, Arthur Weitzel era. Plus, of course, a very young Eddie Weitzel looking on. There must obviously have been lots of good fish about back then. But in certain areas of the Thames estuary, because of its shallow depth, that fact might not always have been obvious to the anglers at the time. Then, along comes uptide fishing. History will show that Cox and Rawl are the creators of uptiding, which did so much to reverse the fortunes of shallow water fishing. But I know that your dad was also instrumental in all of this. In fact, it all took place aboard his charter boat. So tell us what you can remember of those developmental days, because you actually witnessed much of this. During my school days, um, secondary school days, it was a case of, uh, at the weekends, maybe going out with my dad fishing, and he was based in, in Hullhaven, Hullhaven Creek. Uh, I used to go out in the Thames Estuary, fish the deep water there. Uh, summer fishing used to be just eels, flounders and the odd bass. And basically it was, you know, centre pin reels, big heavy duty fixed balls and solid glass rods. It was a done thing. And then my dad decided to, in 1973, drop everything and move round to Bradwell. Now he was the first charter skipper there. There was another boat called the Gannet too, which was owned by a guy called Rod Lana, and he was a commercial fisherman. He used to net herring. My dad used to collar a few herring off of him and then fish the baffle, which is a, a staging area which was protected the outflow of the uh, Bradwell Power Station. As they say, the Blackwater, because I often wonder why we know why they call it the Blackwater, because it's so deep and the water's quite clear. And the reason why, and the quality of the water in that river was pretty good because they used to grow oysters there, oyster beds and stuff like that. So it, it was promising. And then the catalyst, what I can remember was my dad was out fishing and he'd caught this skate. No, we've only known cod, hills and flounders. What's this thing with wings and stuff like that? It was a 16 and a half pound skate, so it was in the papers. Got photographed and everything, and uh, and from there on, everything seemed to. People were contacting him, bait diggers, photographers from the Evening Echo, where they took the photograph. Bob Cox was a freelance photographer, a very good one as well. <laughs> so people got together very quickly, and was going, "What's this skate? Where'd you get these bass? Oh, fishing in the shallows." But the, the local parties used to go out, you know, with the big multipliers, the big scent pins. I mean, up until 15, 20 years ago, you still see him using them on, out from Whitby. And, uh, I was sitting there quite happy catching the odd flounder. And then, in order to sort of, you know, maybe get a bit of food for the week, my dad used to cast out away from these dangling people with this dangle the rods over the side. And of course, I realised that keeping away from the others produced some fish. Then, uh, the more bait was required, then John Rawls, I'd like to do this. He used to have a boat, a small boat around at uh, South End, Thorbay, 
and then with a bit of knowledge, and then Bob Cox with photography, and again Keith Linsell with the qualities of the angling he had, also the illustration qualities he had as well. It sort of gelled together and made a, a good format to go out and experiment. And uh, it was quickly come aboard uh, Ian Gillespie with the, the technology and the manufacturing knowledge of maybe producing equipment, terminal gear, rods, to assist this sort of new type of casting away from a boat, fishing in six to seven foot of water, which was unheard of. If you went out in the Thames fishing from South End, if you wasn't in the channel, you wasn't catching fish. Everybody's blinkered. But all of a sudden, everybody's sort of casting them using cart rods. What's all this light gear? Everything's light. £10 line. Fixed ball drills. And of course, you think, well, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, casting away from the boat. Everybody's on the boat with their big boots and stuff like that. Even on my dad's wooden boat. The boat we had at the time was called Provident. And, uh, yeah, everybody's scare factor. So there was a lot of people that, um, a lot of anglers come together very quickly. And all of a sudden the clubs, okay, hang on, we want to book some boat trips out. They're catching good numbers of fish, good numbers of cod. Now, I know that uh, this uptight fishing wasn't really, as I know today, where you, you sit in a tide run, maybe in 25 to 45 foot of water, and you cast uptide and you wait for the cod to come along. It wasn't like that then, I don't think. When I used to fish, it was fishing away from the boat, but you didn't have a big bow in your line. You just had little leads, little cart rods. And then it was, it was the, I'd say it was a poor man's game fishing then. Within about two or three years, that's from about 1974, it exploded. I mean, they talk about the internet these days, how someone on the other side of the world catches a 60 pound tuna and everybody in the UK knows about it. But amazingly enough, through the articles that Bob Cox wrote and uh, John Rawl reported on catches, it sort of exploded and everybody was going out and the, the local tackle shots were eager to get on the bandwagon with the, the uptide rods and the development of these uh, rods and multipliers to suit, low diameter lines. It all sort of followed its suit. But the main thing was, in my mind, was the, was the breakaway lead. When you say your dad was casting away from the boat in shallow water to keep out of the client's way, what kind of lead was he using in those early days? Was it wired, or was it just a plain pattern? I might have one left on me in my tackle box somewhere as a, a souvenir. It was the Arsley bomb. I used to love those. And of course, a moving lead in shallow water, and you've got a big fish searching for a decent bit of ragworm, they'll find it very quickly. But eventually, this developed from a roving lead to a fixed grip. So how did all of that come about? When the autumn came and the codling were there, they went back into, I'll say, deep water, 30, 40 foot of water. And then they realised that they needed to use the same technique of keeping away from the boat. They knew that the anchor chain, the anchor was giving out vibrations. Because you could feel it, and I remember my dad saying, look, feel that, and you could feel the, the tide running, and your arms are shaking as you're holding the anchor walk. So all that is noise. And of course, all, you know, your propeller's turning, it's out of gear. Every little thing like that was making an effect, and then I suppose at the end of the day, they didn't want everybody fishing downside because of the tangles, and there's somebody fishing up tide, and then they're just rolling the lead back round. So let's get these fixed leads on, and then we can see when these codling come through, we can really sort of hammer them. 
which presumably is where Ian Gillespie came in. Yeah, this is why he was... Uh, I've got an early magazine here, and basically it shows an article describing casting away from the boat, and then all the potential on my dad's boat of what you could catch casting away from the boat. And then the next two pages on is Ian Gillespie showing you a picture of this breakaway lead. So obviously the two things must have come together very quickly. Was it Gillespie himself who actually invented the breakaway lead? I always assumed he did. But I think there must have been other engineers who maybe sort of assisted him he probably went to a, a pattern maker saying, I want some leads to spring out or whatever with, with the grapnels and it. And then maybe it just, it just arrived. The, the earliest memory I've seen of breakaways is the, the ones with the little red balls on. And then that was it. There was, was no turning back then. I can remember using even earlier versions than that with elastic bands holding the wires in place. We used to put elastic bands on because obviously the, the grips used to go after a while and then... It, you couldn't tighten them up anymore. Then we used to put bands around it to stop them out, and then, then it was fixed leads. So where and when did Bob Cox and John Rawl fit into the story? As these days, they seem to get all of the credit. What exactly was their input into all of this? Their input was basically producing the fish in accordance with the, the tackle they were using and was given to, and their, their, their knowledge of which was passed on from a dad to them about uh, the boatmanship and uh, uh, all the marks and everything they used to fish. The opportunities that were given, obviously, to fish with better boats that can go out further. The, I mean, the most famous mark, that, if anybody tells you, is, is the Kentish Schnock. Now, that was fished commercially and by other anglers prior to that in the late 60s with phenomenal catches of bass, absolutely phenomenal. The Kentish Knock is, is more foreland and straight out from Bradwell, about 30 miles. It was a good, was a good four hours trip, but they was willing to do that because of the, the, the catch rate. But there was also large catches of bass within the river as well. But um, everybody knows that in the late 60s and 70s, it was that area of the Thames Estuary was a mass spawning area for everything. Stingrays, whiting, codling, a lot of cod. And bass as well. And bass is still a, it's a spawning area for them. Would it be correct to say then that while Cox and Roll are credited as being the architects of uptide fishing, as much if not more credit should actually go to your dad? Well, I'd say yes, because he told me when he was in the Navy, he, he was stationed up in, uh, in Norway, in right up above the, the Arctic Circle. And the idea of putting a bait up tide... Although he wasn't casting, he was going to the, the bow of the boat, dropping this big lump of squid or octopus, whatever they had in the kitchen, dropping it down, then walking down to the stern of the boat, and he was fishing upside. Because they didn't want to drag a 40, 50 pound cod off the back of the boat, 70, 80 yards up the back of the boat, and the chance of losing it. So they just hooked it, and then just literally, with proper heavy gear, probably rope with a reason, I don't know, but that's how he told me, that, you know, if you're going for food, don't make it hard for yourself. To recap then, uptiding in its primitive form came about in the early part of the 1970s, driven by John Rawl and Bob Cox, plus your dad, Arthur Weitzel. 
Then it started to evolve and become more fine-tuned with specialist rods, a bow in the line, and winding into fish as opposed to conventional striking. So how exactly did that progression come about? There wasn't a lot of progression after the, the bow in the line, but then, then you had the introduction of better weights, better mono, and even, as far as I can say, the braid as well. So that rather than having all this heavy-duty line, everything with regard to resistance against the tide was essential because but a lot of people fish up tide, but they don't know how to fish up tide. They'll see a bite on the rod and they'll leave it and leave it and leave it and leave it. And next thing you know, they've got 70, 80 yards of line out where the smooth hands picked the bait up and just shot down tide. And they're sitting there winding it in for the next half an hour. Now, I don't know whether it's fair on the fish that they're sitting in that tide for half an hour or you can get the fish in, unhook it and put it back and it's quite lively. When I interviewed John Rawl for his take on uptiding, he came out very firmly against the use of braid. So what are your thoughts on that one? Absolutely with him on that one. Absolutely, 100%. hate it. Used it once. And obviously there's no stretch, so does the lead pull out? Does it keep moving downside? I mean, I caught a few fish on it. The bites are absolutely furious because of the no stretch. We just old dogs that don't like new tricks. I don't know. I mean, I didn't like it. Downside and pollock fishing and stuff like that, where you, you need to you feel the tweaks and... It's got its place in the, in the fishing industry, but uptide now. But uptiding isn't about having a direct link from the rod tip to the fish. The bow in the line that stops the lead jumping dictates that that can't be the case. So what advantage has braid to offer, other than perhaps lower diameter to cut the tide, which isn't especially necessary in most uptide situations for me? No, I mean, for a beginner using braid uptide, you'd lose fish a lot. What's your recollection of the early uptide rods? I bought one off John Raw when I first started fishing with him, which was built from a £20 glass boat blank that hadn't been trimmed down to length at either end, giving them maybe nine feet of blank to work with. That was until the purpose-made blanks were available. My recollections of that is quite simply, we didn't have the luxury of oversized boat rods. We had the luxury of beach casters. And we had the aluminium butts, we just had a hacksaw, cut them down, and the old Fuji seat used to go on. Very floppy, but ideal for punching out big baits in the tide. We got on with them quite fine. It wasn't until the late 80s that it was developed into, you know, the Coniflex was leading the way with the uh, the trendsetters, where you've had, you have a, a bit more of a, a flexible tip, a giving tip, and a more of a meaty midsection, which which today is still ticks the boxes for the, uh, the uptiding fraternity. Back then, there would be more fish about to target with uptiding, increasing a potential that was already pretty good. So if you can, contrast the improvement in bag sizes either side of uptiding hitting the scene. When you talk to someone my age, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger, when you used to go out on the boat, it's all... It used to be a pile. It used to be an absolute pile up for the back of the boat. It was a stampede sometimes. There was arguments. Then there was, you know, draw your lots. Then I can't fish upside. I've only got a downside lad. So I think the catch rates, always everybody assumed that off the back of the boat, your catch rates were 
Brilliant. But what scope could you have when you're fishing up near the cabin and you've got fish downside? You've got no chance. You've got tangled chances. You've got this, that and the other. And there's nothing worse than another angler sitting on the back of the boat going, net, net, I've got another one. And you're sitting there going, nothing's touching mine. So that gives, it gives hope to the angler with the ego who can cast up tide and they start hitting fish just as much as those fishing downside. But then again, if you're a good type there, you have to be an all good all rounder because if you're drawing lots, you've got to learn no how to downside and downside is just simply not just bumping it off the back of the boat and just sitting there rolling a cigarette and waiting for a fish to come along. My recollections of Bradwell, and I'm talking 1970s now, was that in the winter you got both good numbers and good sizes of cod, and during the summer this switched to smoothhounds, thornbacks and bass. Plus, as more pioneering work went in, some exceptionally big toll. Also, around the power station you could find some excellent stingrays. Then not only fish numbers, but also fish mix began to change and decline. I don't think it was a decline, it was... I personally blame the small juvenile bass. They seem to have moved further up the river. They used to sit around past O.C. Island. Masses and masses and masses of shoals. You could see them as you were walking along the front. You could see these boils of bass. And I mean, only like four or five inches long. Now, if you're fishing for stingrays and you're targeting these fish, you use your ragworm. Or if you're sometimes lucky, you might get one on crab. But if you use ragworm, that's what you'd get it on. But you've got a thousand bass in front of you. You're only going to get a little bass every cast. And that's, that was a decline of it, really. If you were fishing for stingrays or targeting them, which a lot of people used to, because it was, you know, you tell someone you caught a stingray the other day, you think you'd gone to the Canaries or somewhere, you know. Wow, stingrays that big there? Yeah, I'll catch them there. And some of the marks, just within sight, within spitting distance of the marina, you'd catch them. Peewit Island, Thurslick Creek on the other side. My dad always used to fish Thurslick Creek. You go in the into there with his little ferrograph, and he could he can go up and he see this little mound go down along about forty feet, and go back down. He used to fish right on top of that, and plenty of stingrays. And it wasn't until about three or four years later. The knave had come along and found that he was fishing on a V2 rocket. And the thornback rays. When I first fished the area, there were tons of the things. Then John tells me, like the rest of the country, these went into decline, but are now coming back big style in line with the national trend. Yeah, it's another sort of hardy creature who knows how to survive. I mean, the netting in the early 70s and the long line, you know, sort of really come into its own off that coastline from Claxton through to Wallace and places like that and it just wiped out more or less everything especially the smooth hands I mean, you used to get smooth hands right the way up but Thornbacks yeah they've made an unbelievable comeback 1974 nobody heard of Thornback none of the angling shops and just now you can catch them off of Canvey Canvey Island of all places so the influx of them and there's, it's, it's almost it's almost to the epidemics of, of the uh, the dogfish days yeah, but a nicer epidemic to get struck down by. I would say so, yeah. I mean, some people call them bag fish, but at the end of the day, if you get a nice 16, 17-pound skate in a decent tide run, and challenge yourself, we'll try and get that in against the tide. Yeah, yeah. I've tried it in the Mersey with the tide screaming yeah. through. 
My dad used to, I don't know how he'd done it, but he could tell you he got a skate on, but he'd tell you what sex it is. And he never told me how he, you know, he never told me how he knew. And there was one where he, he, he said, you've got a skate on. Someone, Robert was arching over. He said, you've got a skate on. He said, I can't tell you which what sex that is. When he got it up, there was two of them. They were mating at the same time. The female was hooked and the male was underneath. He said, that's why I couldn't tell you. Funny, because it's the same with the common skate. The males, which are smaller than the females, max out around 140 pounds. But what they lack in size, they certainly make up for in attitude. So maybe it's the same with the thornback rays as well. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I used to, I was like, I used to look at the lines and look at my line, and it used to be a, the line used to be going round in a circle as it was coming off the back of the boat. And I think, well, how do you know? You know, I don't know. It's a skate. To me, it's a skate. I know it's a skate because the way it's fighting. And again, with the stingrays as well, I knew it was a stingray on the line. If you're in six foot water, it used to fight in big, massive circles. And you could see all the silk coming up as it was going around. Fantastic. What's the smooth hound situation there now? Because Bradwell had a good reputation for lots of smooth hounds and at times some very big specimens too. It did, yeah. I mean, we used to fish the uh, North East Matlins on a regular basis and uh, from the Thames I used to go out and, you know, anything between 18 and 24 pounds was a good fish. And then within about two or three years, we realised that the fish stock, or the fish, average fish size went down to about 8 to 10 in certain areas. I did hear of a lot of netting going on, wiped out shoals and shoals. And I remember my dad, you know, used to fish up the river in the black water and catch them, but you wouldn't see them now. I've not seen one call. I remember catching one on, on the pillbox at the entrance of the Bradwell Marina Creek. And stingrays as well, not big ones, only like 12, 14 pounders. Yes, I mean, some species have gone and won't be, well, maybe not be returning. But like I say, the, the black water is, is just one big, big nursery ground. And let's not forget the taupe. The taupe, yeah. I've got to credit that to John Rawl because my dad used to go out, but uh, obviously with the clientele years ago, there wasn't interested in catching sportfish. In fact, I, I always remember we're getting on the boat when I was crewing for my dad. Not very often, but I did. And the one of the blokes said, where are we going today? He said, we'll go out down the northwest middles or something like that and maybe pick up a decent type. He said, I don't want them things with the big ears. He said, I want something to take home to eat. So off we went, fished the heaps for the bass. But yeah, but I'll credit that to John Rawl, yeah. Definitely, that, you know, the big catches of type in the you know, late 80s. When I had my boat, I used to go out. I had two good years out there. But it was a lazy way of doing it. We used to stockpile eels we uh, in Benfleet there's um, the eel dikes and we used to stockpile them they used to last about two or three weeks in a tub I remember escaping once and my dad was trying to get them out of his fish pond but the only reason why you used eel tails purely because of the there's no mackerel but and then again you used to think well we didn't have the equipment to look for mackerel visually obviously on top of the water you could see the, you know, the birds working and stuff like that but we didn't have the the wrecks on knowledge to, to find some mackerel on wrecks to then go for taupe. So we either used to have to go to Billingsgate, buy some eels at a huge cost and use them, but it was, we had two or three good years. But when you get, you know, a 50, 60 pound taupe alongside the boat with, you know, anglers who 
not used to that sort of size fish, and they can see teeth on the end. It was good. And the, I think the main thing is, again, it was uptied in as well, because obviously in the old days off of Herne Bay and the old type matches there, it was everybody was off the back of the boat. But now you can have more anglers having more chance of a decent fish, a fish of a lifetime then. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, John Rule definitely sort of got the market on that, definitely. So having lived in Essex and Lancashire, plus having fished all around the country, What's your take on the current fishing scene generally in terms of winners, losers and trends? Um, that's a good question, well presented. <laughs> <laughs> None of us have got crystal balls, but I think we used to see a lot of cycles of fish coming through. Uh, I think that this, with the beaches getting cleaner and cleaner, you're going to get a different type of species coming through. They say that it is going to be a harsh winter this winter. You think, well, the new species coming up from the Mediterranean and places like that, are they all going to die off? Are they going to disappear? And we're going to get a really bad year next year. I've just seen a picture of a, a gilt-head bream caught off the South End Pier. I've never seen that before. Last year, I see a picture of a striped bass caught off of Dover Admiralty. You think, oh, wait, what's going on? And then a couple of local chaps up in Lancashire, they they went to North Wales, and they're, they're quite happy catching black bream off the shore. This is fantastic. But um, to be even localised here, you know, you can think to yourself, you know, what we've got, you know, we've got the bullas, you know, nice big bullas off of here. But try and target them is very hard because you've got the dogfish that come in at the same time and take the bait. So whether you're going to be a... Think like a carp angler who, who, who fishes a lake with loads of crayfish and he has to put a, a case around his boiling with holes in. So you'd have to think like that. But what the future holds with the, the different types of fish and that, yeah, I think it's, it's quite promising because there'll be a time when it will be totally uneconomical for any sort of large factory ship trawlers and that to go out and, and catch stacks of fish because there's no stacks of fish to catch. On the plus side, we're now out of the EU, which must have a benefit on fish stocks. We also have rising sea temperatures pushing species further north, which is bound to mean winners and losers. That said, the mako shark, which is a warmer water species that we should be seeing more of these days, is often less caught now than it was 40 years ago, whereas smoothhounds and black bream are now regulars as far north as Scottish waters. So I appreciate that predicting the future is not an easy question to answer. I remember the days in the Thames where it was absolutely a filthy river. But you used to get absolute stacks of ragworm, good quality worm. And they're all feeding off this effluent stuff. And then all of a sudden you get the big fish. Because, you know, it's, it's all the chain reaction, isn't it? But now the waters are getting clearer and clearer and clearer. Then you'll have to think differently. you have to think, well, don't need to grab your rods, you know, just grab your spinning rod and be plugs. Let's go plugging. I mean, I know for a fact off the Fylde Coast, within about 20 yards of the water lapping up, the water's as clear as anything. Absolutely clear. You could plug. But the only sandals I've seen are two inches long. So is it is it another nursery area? I don't know. I think it, it could well be. I mean, the, the average size of a cod at the moment coming into Waltham is one and a half to two and a half pound. But do you have to go on the East Coast to find the bigger ones? Maybe you do, but... Is there enough of them? 
Well, the East Coast too has had its share of problems, and has only recently recovered and started to rebuild its reputation. Our course too had lots of big colour, Blackpool in the 70s and 80s, but has rarely, if ever, seen a double since. I think the big fish are not just not there anymore. To have big fish coming regularly, you need the food supply for them. And obviously, North Sea is 90% there. It's sandhill. I mean, when I've got it coddling off of here, you know, there's plenty of crab in them. But you know there's plenty of crab because all, just, all you see is sand at low water, but 100 yards out, it's just pebble. It's just an absolute... But I know that if you fish crab bait, you will get the coddling, but you won't get a, an eight, nine pounder every time. It's one of those things where, you know, you look, keep plugging away. I don't mind. I'll, I'll take a two and a half pound coddling any day and fill it and put it in a frying pan. Not a problem. Is it because you're selecting the fish you want to eat rather than the dogfish and the, the whiting? I think I've had a few pounds off of it, but then again, there was a spell back in the 1980s when for several years we had pouting about in plague proportions. They were even worse than today's dogfish for ripping up big cod baits. Gone. You sometimes wonder if pests like dogs and pout explode when fish like cod are hit extra hard commercially, suddenly providing lots of extra food for them. Then later the cod struggle to make a comeback when the commercial pressure is eased. In terms of competing for food, I think the cod will win every time. The thornback's a scavenger. You're less a spotted dogfish is a scavenger. And they seem to be on top of it at the moment. So there's a lot of scavengers out there rather than predatory fish like the cod, the bass, and the um, bullus, and the spur dog. Spur dog was an ultimate predatory fish in packs. They'd wipe a shoal out in minutes. So I think the scavengers are winning at the moment. It's just that where there's water, the, the fish will fry, but it's whether the ones you want to catch. Like you say with the pouting, that's a matchman's dream. You know, I've seen them on piers fishing for pouting. They love them. I know you're shaking your head, but if you had a club, you had half the club members, the stampede down here for the, the dogfish and the pouting. Yeah, but expectations are different from the shore. So what do you make of change in tackle and tactical trends on both the boat and the shore scene over recent years? I mean, I've done a lot of boat fishing, and I used to fish the NFSA Essex Division a lot, and it used to, used to over-elaborate your gear sometimes. And I think uh, after a year, you think, right, what are you doing now? What are you fishing with now? No, I'm going back to basics. And you go back to basics, you start all over again, and you start catching fish, and you think, well... Why have I overcomplicated it? Why is there so much advertising? I'm using these beads, I'm using this lead which glows in the dark. There's always been that situation. I remember the old funny little worms and stuff like I used to buy from the shops and the little um, flounder spoons. They've always been around. Sometimes it's psychological, sometimes it's not. And there's all your bait additives. I can't understand these bait additives. I can understand them in car fishing where there's no tide running. And uh, you can soak a uh, boilie for, you know, four or five days and then use that and catch a fish on it, catch a carp on it. You think, well, there's no flavour in it, but, it's, you know, it's still folding. You try and do that in, in sea fishing or beach fishing, you've got no chance. You can use stinky baits, you can use old baits, and, but additives, I don't, just don't get that. I don't get that at all. I've always been a fan of simplicity. 
overcomplication or trying to cover all bases often ends up covering none. Why well, use panel rigs for smooth hand fishing? I just can't get my head around that. I've seen so much damage done to a smooth hand where you've got the upper hooks gone round on his back and he's gone around his dorsal fin and scratched him. And then you intend to put the fish back. I mean, the most basic tackle would catch you a smooth hand, as long as it's strong enough to hold the runs and that. It's just, yeah, fine. Also, the moving away from wire traces for top and skate is totally unnecessary. Yeah, because it's the same, same scenario. It cuts through. I mean, I'll, when I used to go pipe fish, I never used to use wire trace. It used to be 78 pound mono with sea hooks. <laughs> so what do you make of LRF? Deliberately targeting mini species, either for fun or in species competitions. Yeah, I think we flip back to the old pounding situation there, where you've got your your little three bearded rocklings and stuff like that. They're just catching what's there. But fishing and angling is you know, full of ego, and if your ego is set to to win a match with a top knot and a four bearded rockling, and then that's fine. I mean, those sort of mini species are an important setup towards the ecology of the of the shoreline. If you're taking that away, well, you know, the fish, you know, the bass come in after these little gobies and stuff like that. But to borrow your earlier line about fishing for what's there, is LRF indicative of the way things are now headed with regard to fish availability? Yeah, there's no point in fishing a beach where you know there's, there's nothing being caught for months and months. There's nothing worse than providing an angler or a charter skip providing a bunch of anglers to say, you know, there's nothing being caught. You can't you just say, well, we'll have, to, we'll have to go for a species hunt today. There's not a lot around. So, you know, I've, I've seen them done it, do it before. I mean, I remember getting on a, a, a trawler at Folkestone. We might say, oh, I booked up a boat. They said, come on, we'll go down there and do a bit perky. And I said, all right, go to the barn bank. Oh, yeah, I'll right, do Gets on the boat, just pulling away in the morning. My mate turns around to the skipper. He said, did you get out yesterday? He said, yeah. He said, uh, the skipper said, oh, but I'll be honest with you. He said, uh, we had one cod. And we hadn't had anything from prior to that, we had anything for two weeks. And my mate looks at me and I went, so expectation is always there. And we could have fished local, but we did have a few cod that day. We just fished harder, that's all. There's nothing worse than, what's the best thing to know you're going out there and there's hardly any fish out and you catch a few fish, you're happy. Unless you go out there expecting to catch a load, especially the old phrase that should have been here last week. And I used to say to people, you know, you know, what we're going to catch. I said, well, I say, you know, that bloke we told you should have been out there last week. Well, I was out there last week. Now I am that person. <laughs> so the expectations are there, and like you've got the mini species, is it's all part of fishing. It's like the course angling scene. You know, they sit there, they're catching the gudgeon, the mini species, and it. And some people tell me, well, there is a lot of skill in sort of things like that. You know, you've got to set up, you've got to be organised. But um, to me, the fishing is, it's got to be. Coming from that pioneer era, you've got to keep that pioneering spirit inside you. And a lot of stuff that I do, you know, I, I can knock up some surprises, just purely for fishing differently. And the people and the anglers that I admire most are exactly the same as that, and I've copied them. The old modern, you know, think outside the box, fish for something different. Speaking of thinking outside the box and trying new things, what do you think of these ultra-fine tip continental beach casters and the purring up with fixed pool reels? It's fine. I think it's brilliant. Again, it's another adaptation of our blinkered policy for the last 30 years of your, your ziplexes, your pendulum casting, 
And then all of a sudden, someone says, well, the guy in Portugal off the beach, he was using his lovely little fine rod. And he's he's not sitting there, if you, if you get your pendulum cast wrong, you know, you, you could be all sorts of trouble. But if you can thump out a lead 150, 160 yards, it's absolutely brilliant. It cuts down on the skill factor. Yeah, it does, but what makes things complicated? While being elitist, if you've been down, you know, the beaches at Dungeness in autumn time, you know. It's more like a, a catwalk, whether you've got all your gear and everything. They're sitting there with their rods and rod stands, admiring their, you know, their ziplexes, their, their centuries there, you know, the rods and everything, and their stroke and their rings and everything, and who built that. And, are we going to catch anything today? Well, I don't know, but we've got all the gear. Well, unfortunately, you get a lot of that sort of mentality in all walks of life. Yeah, you do. I mean, I've been in the other, the other areas, fly fishing. I mean, you can, you got all your gear and everything. But I mean, I used to go fly fishing with fifteen quid setups and absolutely transit. But combine your knowledge between the, all the disciplines of carp fishing and stuff like that. I spent three, four years on a carp fishery, living on it. So I've had my belly full of that sort of fishing. It was brilliant. I love the way it's all set up. I can understand what you're doing there is you're alleviating every possibility of something not happening like you're dropping your bait on weed. Because you're leaving your baits out a long time, so you want to be in that prime position. And the lengths that we used to go to to get in a prime position, dropping your leg, casting it across the other side of the bank, fixing your baits on. Maybe you can adapt that into some kind of sea fishing area. And of course, a classic combination is you could go carp fishing or you can go monet fishing. You can bring the fish on, you can feed them. Two, three weeks, get your onion sacks, fill it up, put it in your bed and, and feed them, bring them on. And there's nothing more satisfying than, than catching a few mullet on something you spent, you know, three or four days trying to induce them to catch. Yeah. There's overlaps on all different aspects of fishing. What about overlaps and changes on the boat fishing scene? The changes I've seen is, is more towards the game fishing side, like you big common skate fishing. Up in Scotland, you've got your Welsh blue shark fishing trips. You've still got your, your cross-channel jersey trips to the fill your boots up. All right, you've got new wire traces, new sharper hooks, chemically sharp, and they've been going for 20-odd years. But, um, yeah, lures. I mean, I still go down pollock fishing. I use the same lures I've used for 20 years. There's no difference. It's all about your confidence and what's in your head. I mean, obviously, colours are important. But then pollock fishing, I've never gone on, you know, bigger the lure, the bigger the fish. In fact, it could, you know, quite often be the opposite. One trend I've picked up on is the fact that unlike years ago, when charter boat bookings were mainly parties, and if you didn't get in early enough, you missed out, these days it's more about groups of individuals. Possibly because clubs are not what they used to be. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've, I've been involved with a, a fishing club for the last 40 years. And my dad was as well. I mean, it was, it was his door into opening up for juniors and stuff like that into the aspect of uptiding. And the decline of clubs and that is quite sad. I think the fishing forums have taken over that era. There's still clubs still going and the, the, the England club that I'm secretary and treasurer for is still going strong. But it's a smaller unit now. I mean, you used to join a, a fishing club to go go on these boat trips. You used to go on these beach trips. And also, your idea was to learn as well. That was the main thing. My dad was got involved with the club and I got involved. And a lot of people in that club at the moment still fondly remember my dad. 
and the trips you to take them out on. Now with the fishing forums and that, you just punch up an, a question and, you know, where can I find this? Where, where's the marks here? And none of the value, you get five or six. It was just fantastic, really, but is it really the way forward? But, you know, I've already seen a trend where the fishing forums are going down now and it's all Facebook. And the information is not as much coming forth from Facebook than what it is from the fishing forums. Dinghy fishing has taken its toll too. Back in the jumbo days, on a big tide in settled conditions, it was literally like a car park out there. Same conditions 30 years on, and he'll struggle some days even to see another boat. Again, it's to do with fish stocks, I'm pretty sure. It's got to be that. At the end of the day, you've got better boats, you've got more efficient engines, you've got your lean burn, four strokes. Years ago, we was on that dinghies, you, you did seagull engines. I can, I can see myself today pulling in cords with my fingers crossed and everything, you know. Where's the spanner for getting the old spark plug? It's got to be the spark plug. You're going on like a 20 mile trip and you've got your two 10 gallons of petrol and doing your mixtures. It's more efficient now. You've got your um, plotters and stuff like that and fish finders. The advancement is, is there for everybody to use, but is it because people will buy the boat and they just can't afford to, to have the time off because they're working to pay it off or whatever? Coupled with um, the lack of species. I mean, some of the people who go out, they do well, some of them. In terms of boats and electronics, it's true, things are immeasurably better. But 30 years ago, when we didn't have any of this, we still caught more and better fish. Yeah. The scope for not catching was a lot, lot less. I mean, because anybody used to say, oh, where did you go fishing? Oh, we went fished the Wesley Middle. Oh, great. And we never went on to the Dump Boy. Oh, right, that's good. Well, yeah, the fantastic marks. But my dad sort of showed me, you know, so, well, yeah, they're good marks, but you had three hours where you didn't catch anything. So why was that? He just said to me, why was that? Oh, because I was in 2040, so wait until tide run. Oh, it stopped. He said, well, if you go out in the deep water, you've got more tide run. But it wasn't until those sort of tides towards the end of you know, the 90s and then fish started thinning out, and you had to use those, you had to use your noddle. But I know people used to go out in ribs and stuff like that and sit in there and fill the boat up with cod. Where was you? I oh, was just out there. Just out there. There we are. What, over by the channel? I don't know, it was out. I was over by the channel. Was the channel there? Yeah, there's the boy. I was somewhere near there. There's no thought on where they went. It just went, or you see two or three boats, and then you get joined by about four or five other boats. So it was easier then. Yeah, it was definitely easier. But now you're chasing a lot fewer fish. It's harder work, and you can only afford to go out maybe once a month. And that Eastley's just arrived and you go out and you catch nothing. So it's doom and gloom to some. You know, the more you go out, the more in the groove you get. Fewer fisher boats certainly sorts the men out from the boys. On the other hand, it's sad to see that it's actually come to that. But it is what it is. So many thanks to Eddie Weitzel for giving us plenty to think about there. <laughs>